0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series of the Foundation for
1: European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on FEPS-Europe.eu.
0: Welcome to today's FEPS Talks. My name is Leticia Thyssen, I'm FEPS Gender Equality Policy Advisor, and today we will focus on the gender digital gaps and the risk the online sphere poses to women and girls. To do this, I could not be more delighted to be joined by our experts for whom this very specific topic has absolutely no secret. And that is Dr. Lilia Juni. A very warm welcome to you in our Fab Talks podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Leticia, to you and to the entire FAPS team for inviting me to chat about something that is uh, so very close to my heart. Um, I'm delighted to be uh, here
0: with you all today. So you're a researcher at the University of Cambridge and an intersectional feminist activist. But you're also the co-founder and CEO of the gender equality think tank, GenPOL, which stands for Gender and Policy Insights. And your research and advocacy work covers gender-based violence, including online abuse, gender and social injustice in various organizational settings, and the intersections between gender technology and capitalism. So I feel we could not be in a better company to explore this extremely relevant topic.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as you said, I do wear different hats. And for me, my research work and my activists, if you like, my advocacy work are Truly, the the necessary complement to one another. I really struggle to imagine how I, how I could carry out academic research without trying to work for it to have a, a more direct impact on uh, policy and uh, on the lives of uh, women and broader communities.
0: Before we dig deeper into the topic that brings us uh, here today, could you tell us a bit more specifically about the work that you conduct with uh, with JAMPO, the the think tank that you represent here today?
1: Of course, with pleasure. So JAMPO is a uh, a think tank and the social enterprise. So there are three main components, three main dimensions to our work. We carry out research on uh, uh, gender issues, broadly meant, as you mentioned, with a specific focus on uh, uh, gender-based violence and uh, with an intersectional feminist perspective. So by these, I mean that we take very seriously the ways in which gender-based discrimination and abuse also intersect with other forms of uh, violence and discrimination motivated, for example, by race, by homo-lesbo, by transphobia, and so on and so forth. Then we also carry out advocacy work, So this means that literally every single piece of research that we produced is designed to be used by ourselves or by other organizations, such as hopefully FAPS, as a basis for advocacy actions. And on the top of that, we also do a little bit of consultancy. So we try to help other organizations and other stakeholders to understand the impact that gender has on their own work and to adopt kind of gender-sensitive, gender-aware solutions to to their work.
0: Thank you very much uh, for this explanation. And that that brings us uh, straight away to our uh, focus of the day. And before we actually start focusing on the situation today when it comes to the gender digital gaps and the risk that it poses uh, to women and girls, let us perhaps uh, take a bit of a historical perspective. Indeed, from the 19th century to the present day, women have actually played uh, crucial roles in the development of uh, technology. However, they are systematically underrepresented and underpaid nowadays. Part of the problem is that female pioneers of computing, programming, mathematics and science have largely been written out of history by the tech industry, meaning that their stories have at best been forgotten or at worst intentionally erased. And many will be surprised, for example, that uh, computing was traditionally regarded as a feminized role, with uh, women making up the largest uh, trained uh, technical workforce in the computing industry from uh, from the Second World War to the 70s. So it was women uh, who operated the monolithic rooms the uh, early computer used to uh, calculate uh, ballistics or crack enemy codes during the war. Or when, when computers uh, made their ways into workplace, it was also women who uh, worked behind the scenes to ensure that governments were able to collect data. There's also a woman who sent the first space flight into orbit, uh, as was made famous uh, by uh, by the mo- movie uh, Hidden Figures. Uh, so despite the early successes of these uh, early innovators, uh, as male managers began to realise the importance of uh, computers in the 70s, women were pushed out of the industry, and their roles were given to men for higher pay. And women were entrusted with the very technical work that they had pioneered themselves. So as you know, the situation today is quite different. Women are namely heavily underrepresented at all levels in the Digital sector in Europe. And although the sector is rapidly growing, uh, creating hundreds of thousands of new jobs every year, the share of women in this sector is actually decreasing. So, despite an, in, uh, an increasing demand for ICT related skills and the soaring unemployment, the EU is projected to suffer from a shortage of digital skills. And in parallel to this trend, we also see that women and girls are disproportionately more affected by online violence than men. But as was highlighted by EGI, 20% of young women uh, between 18 and 29 in the EU have experienced online sexual harassment. And no no less than 9 million girls in the EU have undergone a form of digital gender-based violence by the time they were 15. The increasing reach of the internet, the rapid spread of uh, mobile information, the widespread use of social media, coupled with the existing pandemic of violence against women and girls, has led to the emergence of cyber violence as a growing global problem with potentially significant economic and social consequences. So we've actually gone backwards, not forward. And if the digital sector is to become more diverse, it is vital that we celebrate and foster the women to make a difference in the digital uh, world today. And precisely in December, the European Commission unveiled its much-rated Digital Service Act and Digital Markets Act under the promise of making Europe fit for the digital age. But in this context, it is almost unavoidable to wonder if Europe is actually fit to include women and girls in this transition to the digital age. So in other words, I would like to ask you, Lydia, if you can help us unravel the the general extent and gravity of the gender-digital divide from a European perspective? Of
1: course. So, well, first of all, I love your little kind of historical introduction. I love the fact that, you know, you managed to touch all the, or at least most of the different dimensions that digital exclusion and uh, what I like to call kind of uh, the patriarchal, the gender dimension of today, digital capitalism includes. So you also mentioned a couple of recent pieces of research. And I have to say, I have noticed, you know, working in this space that interest around this topic, interest around, you know, research and advocacy initiatives surrounding this topic, has been definitely massively increasing. And I think there are, you know, fundamental reasons for this. They go well beyond, uh, you know, the kind of classic, banal, digital is sexy mantra. Because I'd say, you know, all these questions such as those that that, that you touched upon, uh, questions, you know, surrounding the, the, the politics of digitalization are really amongst the, the most profound, the, the deepest of our age. Are digital technologies oppressive or emancipatory? And those of us who identify as feminists well, should we side with uh, with the technophobics or with the, the tech enthusiasts? And, and as you mentioned yourself, you know what actions should uh, should this prompt from policymakers, from tech companies, and from all of us whose lives have been so transformed by digital habits? Let me say this straight: there are obviously no straightforward answers there, because on the one hand, it is certainly true that that digital tools. Uh, and social media especially, have played a central role in the revitalization of feminists, of LGBTQ+, plus and anti racist and other kind of social justice movements worldwide. It is equally true that, you know, amazing tech-based solutions have emerged in camps as different as uh, education, and public health, and local governments, community, entrepreneurship, social innovation. It, it That is really kind of opened very promising uh, pathways I think for women for marginalized groups for all of us who are interested in uh, in truly inclusive and in just development however on the other hand as you suggested i firmly believe that we should never ever lose sight of, uh, of, all of those who are excluded from or even worse harmed by the digital revolution and I would add to this, we should never ever lose sight of the gender side of these trends, because uh, n- not only, once again, as you as you anticipated, we still be witness today a very significant gender gap in terms of access to technology and to internet connection worldwide, a, a divide that is affected also, of course, by socioeconomic class, by race, by geography, but also and perhaps even you know more more importantly more more tragically internet based technologies are also providing novel channels novel ways to to physically, to psychologically, to economically harm women in various vulnerable groups, ways to to control our lives, to exploit our bodies, our work, to deprive us from and of political agency. So this is precisely what I, myself, and our think tank, Jean Paul, and many others, I would say, are passionate about researching and organizing and uh, advocating against. So in my case, what my interest sort of at the intersection between gender and digital technology, has brought me to engage in two main uh, projects, in two main pieces of work. One is a research programme carried out by our think tank, jean which we launched in 2018 at the European Parliament. So as part of this project, a year later... Jempo published a policy paper that analyzes good practices and search of solutions against digital exclusion and digital gender-based violence, specifically at different levels. A paper in which could consider the strengths and the weaknesses and the, the potential in terms of uh, scaling and sustainability of all these practices. So the second project on which I'm working still kind of the intersection between uh, gender and technology is a book to be published in uh, early 2022. And so here I look more broadly at the intersections between uh, technology, patriarchy and capitalism. So to me, these three institutions are truly the driving forces of 21st century life. And I'm interested in showing how they intertwine and why it is our business and why we All should care. So I try to show how and why within uh, the patriarchal digital capitalism, if you like, communication technologies are used to oppress women. But I also argue that the internet, you know, is no parallel dimension. So it's not like if uh, digital tools existed in a vacuum. Indeed, I would say that digital technologies are very much the reflection of the economic, the social, the political processes that lead to their creation. And sadly, these processes are already highly gendered and unfair to begin with. So as you mentioned, Leticia, despite uh, the sort of quite feminist beginning of uh, the digital revolution, Today, very few women, uh, let alone uh, non-white women or women from otherwise marginalized backgrounds, sit in the board of the companies or are involved in key decisions that concern, say, the design of algorithms or other uh, technological devices. So I would argue, you know, should it come as a surprise that the digital world ended up mirroring and perhaps even amplifying the, the misogyny and the social injustice that are already present in our societies?
0: that's very interesting because uh, the the example of your of your book making the the link between uh, technology patriarchy and capitalism actually seems to be going back to the roots of early feminist research where clear links were actually made between capitalist systems uh, and the oppression of women in a very short and and condensed way but perhaps uh, let us go back to the very concept of uh, digital gender based violence which is something that is really at the core of uh, of your other publication uh, uh, When Technology Meets uh, Misogyny that uh, that you published uh, in uh, in 2019. And then you refer to the concept of digital gender-based violence as one of the most appropriate to be adopted by legislators, practitioners and advocates uh, generally. So what does the concept itself cover to be precise?
1: So I have a question first. Am I allowed to indulge my academic nerdiness a bit in answering this question? So I will start off then by questioning just as you know, we academics do the words and the definitions that we use when we um, when we refer to this phenomenon. And you know, I find in the case of digital. Uh, gender-based violence, this is truly of the utmost importance because uh, there is a lot, sadly, that is inaccurate and misleading in the current public conversation, the current uh, public debate about online abuse. So I'm sure, for example, that many among uh, our listeners uh, would have seen instances of online abuse against women or uh, anyone else really referred to with terms such as uh, cyberbullying or virtual violence or trolling. So while there is no commonly agreed definition of online violence against women internationally uh, yet. There are, as you point out, specific reasons why I and our think tank, Jean Paul, in in our report, use the term uh, digital gender-based violence. And there are reasons why, really, we consider the fight for a more correct terminology and a more correct coverage of the phenomenon as uh, a key advocacy, a key activist strategy. So to begin with, I think it is really crucial that we acknowledge and recognize that digital violence is very real, extremely damaging to the people who experience it, unlike what terms such as virtual or bullying uh, might suggest. In fact, researchers and psychologists, again and again, have identified in survivors of digital violence uh, the very same symptoms caused by other forms of sexual and physical abuse that traditionally used to take place offline. And that's true both in terms of physical and mental health impact and in terms of repercussions in the kind of social and professional sphere. So we're talking, you know, depressive symptoms, um, heightened anxiety levels, Post traumatic stress response, loss of self esteem, loss of confidence, concentration power. Many women who experience online violence uh, sadly also feel at some point deterred from continuing to use digital platforms. They see their professional performances suffer very significantly. Many also consider quitting their jobs and in the industries. Indeed, they do. Very tragically, some of them resort to self harm, they even kill themselves. Another important factor to bear in mind, I think, is that online and offline violence against women women. women truly exist in a continuum. So they constantly kind of intersect and reinforce one another. So for example, we know that digital technology is increasingly used by stalkers, by abusive partners uh, to control and to, to harass victims whom they also interact with offline and it is also increasingly used by sex traffickers to lure victims into uh, organized sexual exploitation. So that's uh, about the sort of last part of the definition if you like. So why it is important for us that online abuse is that regarded as violence now as for the first part of the definition if you like uh, well that's another key point because uh, we feel that not only digital abuse is an appalling form of violence but also that it is uh, a gender-based phenomenon and that's something that societies and policy makers and media and we all should really take as a starting point if we want to plan any form of meaningful action and that's because while of course cyber crimes can be certainly uh, directed against people of all genders, uh, We need to be very, very clear about the fact that research indicates consistently that online abuse against women is both quantitatively and qualitatively different. So you mentioned data from the European Agency for Fundamental Rights. So you talked about the famous stats, the fact that one in five women in Europe under thirty has already experienced online sexual harassment. We also have global stats. So according to the UN, for example, women globally are 27 times more likely than self-identifying men to be harassed online. So yeah, (laughs) numbers are scary. We have other studies from across different countries around the world that confirm that women, and once again, especially non-white, non heterosexual non-gender disabled women, are disproportionately more exposed to extreme forms of online violence. So think that threats, sexual and physical violence threats, a very extreme form of intense uh, hate speech. And as I said, the violence that women experience on the internet is also specific in its nature, in the sense that it tends to be extremely sexualized and overtly motivated By the target's gender. So this means that while men tend to be attacked online uh, mainly uh, due to the opinions they express, which is, uh, of course, despicable as well, but they are much less likely to experience online sexual harassment or, say, unsolicited pornography. So they're way less likely, say, to be sent unrequested pornographic material or to have their Wikipedia pages vandalized with it. It is also much rarer to see technology used to lure adult men informed wanted sexual activity or to see men becoming the victim of image-based abuse what's like normally known as revenge porn that is uh, the distribution of one's intimate like explicit images without one's consent so if i may open a parenthesis here i really like to say something more specific about the the kind of revenge porn versus no consent porn definition so the Current revenge porn is loved by mainstream media, and it suggests that a perpetrator had the prior sexual relationship with the victim and acted as a form of retaliation. However, and awfully, motives for this horrific act that has uh, huge consequences on, on the lives of the victims... Can vary very, very substantially. So uh, the perpetrator, for example, might have never met the victim and might say have obtained these images by hacking into her accounts. The perpetrator might also be deliberately acting to silence the victim, say to ruin her political career in case she was a politician, or to force her to leave an online platform in case she was, say, a journalist or an activist. He might be trying to blackmail his victims. So, for example, to force her to send him more explicit images or to force her into unwanted sexual acts. And I think the worst implication of using the term uh, of revenge porn, which, as I said, I find rather inaccurate, is that I think this erases the fact that image based abuse has truly become today a thriving industry, a, a kind of pornographic genre. So there are several websites that propose this kind of material to their clients on in a, in a regular basis. So we're really much beyond, like way past you know, a couple of score indexes, even though, of course, personal motives can play a role in this crime and, and they can have terrible consequences for uh, the victims or, or survivors.
0: But actually, the, the point that you're making is extremely important and also relevant uh, when we are in the situation of women in, in politics, in public office, where we see that cyber violence is affecting them directly, often pushing them to, to actually stop their role straight away because they cannot cope uh, with the, the amount of violence that they're Confronted with, and also the risk that uh, that young girls uh, growing up uh, uh, in the digital era are, are faced with, because in a way they are constantly followed uh, by bullies. Uh, so nowadays it's just not at school, but also they they have they have the bullies in their in their pocket. So it's it's only present all the time. And in that sense, uh, we have seen also the the, the increase of, uh, of specific actions. We, we know that, for instance, the European Women's Lobby uh, has uh, has done quite some action also to uh, to equip. Uh, women to know how to respond uh, to this uh, to this type of act. So what would be, according to you, uh, the respective roles of the European Union, member states, but also journalists, uh, you mentioned the media before, politicians, private sector, in order to counter what some may also call a silencing effect? Let me address this question in a truthful
1: way, because I, I really think that even though obviously different forms of violence against women are all connected to one another, I think the digital assault on women in public facing roles, so politicians, of course, but also activists and journalists, uh, is particularly scary. And there's a dissent from kind of a specific set of reasons. You know, you're probably familiar with another stat. So in uh, in 2018, Amnesty International found that an abusive tweet was sent to female politicians, journalists and activists uh, across the two sides of the Atlantic every 30 seconds. So I, I think this is a terrifying stat. It kind of really gives us an idea of what's going on there. And uh, I think there are very profound reasons behind the online assault to women who, who dare taking a place in the public space, as you said. It has, as you suggest, much to do with silencing them. And, and I think these reasons go well beyond the, the obvious fact that, of course, the more visible you are, well, the, the most public criticism you may attract, because uh, uh, here once again, we are well beyond the legitimate practices of holding public characters, public figures, uh, figures under scrutiny. I think what we're witnessing here is a sort of uh, patriarchy to zero, a kind of novel version, a new frontier of uh, patriarchal oppression. Because uh, on the one hand, of course, violence against women, and especially women who manage to carve for themselves a sort of niche in the public eye, is all this time. You know, just think of uh, uh, the, the, the libelous, the, the vitriolic treatment that was historically reserved to female monarchs, to female politicians, campaigners, think of the suffragettes, uh, literally to any woman, they're kind of coming close to power. So, it, it, absolutely, when the women of today use the internet to voice their opinions, to, to take political action, they are fighting against this kind of very entrenched, this very uh, formidable system of uh, historical uh, repression but beyond this i think there's also something else that's happening because there are evidently very powerful interests behind the proliferation of digital misogyny there are prominent political actors all over the world who have not hesitated to to weaponize the online assault on women for electoral gains you know populist politicians like trump but also like uh, Bolsonaro, Putin, these are the obvious examples, but there's also plenty of them here in Europe, you know, in my native Italy, in Poland, in the UK, in Croatia, in Austria, all over really. And, And what all of these politicians have done has been to identify to this kind of growing segment of disenfranchised men, especially heterosexual, obviously mostly white men, a key electoral constituency. And very skillfully, very cleverly, these political actors have combined anti feminist and other forms of bigotry and hate into a very compelling narrative. And they fed it again and again to millions of the internet users until they have reshaped global politics and they have completely polarised it. So here we go. You know, Now you've got men's rights activists and uh, digital misogynists in general who have become a kind of uh, a sizable political force globally. And one of their main activities, which these politicians sometimes sitting in top institutions encourage them to undertake, is to brutally target female political opponents. So think of, uh, I don't know, Alexandra Cassio-Cortez and before her Hillary Clinton in the US, but think also of uh, Jess Phillips in the UK, Laura Boldrini in Italy. uh, and, uh, and equally, you know, another sort of tactic is uh, to target female journalists with media coverage these political actors find unfriendly, sympathetic, or to target feminists or anti-racist activists with uh, whose causes uh, they oppose. Uh, so I really think that in a way, this kind of online assault on women in public space has become uh, uh, a chief political strategy. In the 21st century and few in that space seem to care if women's human rights are being violated in the process. So now to go back to your question, what can be done about it? So uh, the reason why I think this introduction is necessary is that we really need to acknowledge that this is a political issue. The entire discourse around technology it must be reclaimed must be politicized for the feminist issue that it is and uh, because it's too important to fight not to get involved in okay so mentioning policy solutions especially in the kind of EU uh, politics uh, politics and policy space if you like so people often ask me questions about criminalization. Like where do I or where does Jempo stand regarding criminalization? So I think the answer there can only be, should only be like a kind of cautious and nuanced one because criminalization is certainly appropriate and needed and effective in some cases. But I think that due to the multiform nature of digital gender-based violence. An excess of it might be paradoxically uh, detrimental. And this is something we, we touch upon in, um, in our policy paper when technology uh, meets misogyny. So I definitely think we do need policy reforms to address specific emerging forms of digital violence, such as, for example, image based views. So think of non consensual porn, think, for example, of upskirting, so the practice okay. of taking pictures underneath someone's clothing without their permission. So the reason why we need legal reform in these areas is that precisely because these uh, new forms of violence are novel, they are unprecedented. Otherwise, without legal intervention, they could not be persecuted and we would remain with a uh, with a kind of legal loophole. But brand new legislation, I think, is not always that necessary, because depending on the country's legal culture, um, you might have existing provisions on um, stalking, on hate crimes, on threats, on privacy that could be abused. Uh, so what I think is truly imperative. Then, and once again, we we mentioned that in our paper, is that instead we train legal and law enforcement personnel to recognize what's going on, to recognize the, the gender nature of it, and to act uh, accordingly in their professional capacity. But there are, I think, at least two other areas in which I think uh, legal reform is uh, imperative. So first, we must remember that when it comes to any form of violence, really, prevention is key. So digital education must become a part of the education curriculum, uh, especially of relationship and sexuality education te- teachings. Now, of course, education is not part of the EU legislative remits. But there is uh, much that European institutions can be can, can do with that respect in terms of like uh, providing support and uh, funding programs that. Uh, Might help member states and organizations within member states to provide good quality, comprehensive education in these areas.
0: Well, I feel I could, uh, we could continue uh, because there is so much to be added to the to the debate. But if there is still one element that you would feel uh, bringing to the to the discussion before we close uh, this podcast, uh, and that you would also like uh, progressive actors uh, to uh, to take into account in their own work, what would it be?
1: Well. So I would say that, you know, there are tech businesses of all sizes that, directly or indirectly, kind of profit out of women's exploitation. And there are large corporations that still refuse to revise their their problematic business models, uh, which are, you know, deeply entangled in the, the publication of uh, violent content. So if we want to move to the, the realm of EU politics and policies, if you like, I'd say the anti-monopoly legislation is badly needed to to reduce the excessive power of that handful of of large tech corporations. And I would also say that social media platforms today, you know, truly function as de facto media. And so just like uh, any other press or mainstream media, they should be held accountable for the contents that they allow their, their users to distribute. So, I really think that legal interventions in this area should be a key priority on the progressive agenda at the EU level and literally in any European country.
0: All in all, we see that uh, clearly some real uh, policy changes is needed uh, in order to address uh, the existing uh, loopholes uh, in the in the system. As you pointed out, training is crucial to assure, ensure the effective uh, and correct application also of existing uh, legislation, and we need to acknowledge, uh, the violent nature, but also the huge mental and physical health costs, uh, as well as the social uh, economic repercussions of uh, digital, digital abuse. Uh, so the promise of equality, therefore, cannot be fulfilled without bringing all relevant actors on board from politicians to journalists and the private sector. Uh, so thank you very much, Lydia, for joining us in this podcast. I'm sure there will have to be a follow up one because we clearly did not have enough time uh, there is never enough time to uh, to address all of it uh, but thank you for helping us break the taboo, uncode uh, the the topic and shed some line uh, shed some important light on the, on the issue. But also, thanks to our audience for listening. If you liked it, make, make sure that you share it on social media and stay tuned with Phelps on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And if you're curious for more, let me give you a little teaser by saying that uh, Lilia is also going to contribute to our sub-gender-based violence publication series. So just look it up uh, and follow and stay tuned uh, on our website. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Leticia.
1: And uh, thank you all. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. for your attention if you found our conversation interesting do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FETTOOLS more is yet to come stay tuned